The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, I don't know if you have ever experienced this when you leave home, but um, when I left home, I found out there were certain customs that we had in our family that was strange to others. For example, when I went off to college and I was around all my fraternity buddies and we would be talking about life, it wasn't until then that I found out that not everybody eats soup for breakfast. I had no idea. I, I, I couldn't even imagine eating soup for lunch or dinner. It was simply a breakfast item to warm you up in the winter. Nor did I know that not every family fought over who got to drink the pickle juice when all the pickles were gone. I had no idea. Nor did I know that really nobody else decorated an Easter tree every Easter. These were all things that I didn't know. And so I would be in my train house and people would be mocking me. And I would think to myself, the same thing I'm thinking now, don't you judge me. And don't you judge my mama. She's right there. Don't judge her. I don't know if any of you are Bob Marley fans. But the very first single he released in 1962 was a song called Judge Not. Any of you know that? Any of you know that? You did? Good. Not many people did. They judged that the song was not very good. But anyways, the song was entitled Judge Not, and it went like this. He said, don't you look at me so smug and say I'm going bad. Who are you to judge me in the life that I live? I know that I'm not perfect. And that I don't claim to be. So before you point your finger, be sure your hands are clean. Judge not before you judge yourself. Judge not if you're not ready for judgment. And then he says this line, The road of life is rocking, and you may stumble too. So while you talk about me, someone else is judging you. Judge not. This might be the most famous two words from the Bible in our current culture. In many ways, it is the new golden rule of our postmodern society. You see, our postmodern society says, whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. Whatever is good for you is good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me. And so let's not intermix and say that there's ultimate truth. And don't judge what I believe to be true. Don't judge what I do. And I won't judge you. And so judge not has become this anthem of our culture. Of course, what is so ironic about the statement of people saying, don't judge me, is that is a statement of judgment declaring that not judging is universally true. But this is the air that we breathe. And many times it even undermines our interaction with one another. Judge not is how the passage starts today. And it may, again, just be one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It's an anthem of our society that relativizes the issues of morality and ethics and truth and, of course, religion. And so with this in mind, it is so important for us to understand, to have a crystal clear knowledge of what Jesus means and what Jesus doesn't mean when he tells us to judge not. If you would please open up to Matthew chapter 7, 
Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. If you're in the children's Bible, it's page 812. And in the red Bible, it's page 1028. Uh, we are wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. After today, we have two more weeks of it. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus proclaiming this counterculture called the church, how we are to act and interact with one another. Today, he continues that with how we engage one another in the midst of conflict. Um, after we are done in two weeks, we will then launch into the book of Acts, uh, which is really the story of the church. It is our story of how God has built his church and continues to build his church. And we will look at it to encourage us to continue uh, to build his church today. But today we're looking at Matthew 7. We will be reading verses 1 through 6. Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. One of the things that makes this passage so confusing and even so funny is the first verse and the last verse. Jesus starts out by saying, judge not. And then in the last verse, he calls people pigs and he calls them dogs. And in our culture, that seems pretty judgmental. And so as we look at this passage, it's a little bit confusing. Even as you look at the rest of scripture, when you look into the New Testament, we are told to judge people's actions. If they're healthy or unhealthy, if they're sinful, if they're righteous. In Matthew 18, he says, if your brother sins against you, that means you are deciding if what they have done against you is sin or if it's okay. In Roman in Galatians 6.1, he says, if a brother is caught in any sin, again, you are making a judgment call on whether what they are doing is sinful or not. And so with these seemingly contradictory statements of we should not judge, yet go and judge, we need to understand what Jesus is trying to tell us. We need to understand what it means to judge rightly and to judge wrongly. And so let's look together. First, verse 1, Jesus teaches us to confront one another lovingly. Look at verse 1. He says, judge not that you be not judged. This word judge has what's called a lexical range, which means it has various meanings. Many of them are intertwined. This is common in the English language. For example, you take the word church, right? The word church could refer to a building. It could refer to a people. It could also refer to a service, right? And so you could say, I'm going to the church to have church with my church, and it's perfectly fine. It's confusing, but it's perfectly fine because there are different nuances to the word. One is made out of bricks. One is made out of people. And the other is made out of singing and prayer and preaching. 
In the same way, this word judge has a variety of connected meanings. And for us today, I just want to give us two umbrellas to see the different ways that this word is used in Scripture. And there there are more, uh, but I want to keep it simple for what we're looking at today. The word that is used here is the word krino, which means to judge. It is used 114 times in the New Testament. And again, it has a wide lexical range. One umbrella that many of the translations of this word fit under is simply to discern. You're discerning information, something as true or false, discerning whether an action is good or is evil. For example, in John 7, 24, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, he is condemned by the Pharisees. And he says to his disciples, he says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. You see, there he is commanding them to make a judgment, to judge whether something is right or wrong, to discern whether it is good or bad to make a man whole on the Sabbath. You look later in Luke seven forty three, and Jesus asked Simon Peter, which debtor would love a money lender more? One who has forgiven him 50 denarii or one who has forgiven him 500 denarii? And Peter says, the one with the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. And so this form of judging, which is not discouraged in the Bible, but encouraged and even commanded, is a form of discernment. To discern ideas and actions and morality. And even people to a degree, as pigs or dogs. And it's not only permitted in scripture, but it is encouraged and commanded. The second umbrella of what judgment means is what I think Jesus is addressing today. It's what he's telling us not to do. And it's something that he is commanding to individuals. As we'll see, this judgment that he warns us against doing is something that is given to certain institutions. But the judgment that he is warning us against is to punish More specifically, a punishment by separating yourself from somebody. This word, krino, is translated in many instances as to separate or to put asunder or to damn or to condemn to hell. It is to literally put someone out or put somebody away. And so to boil down what Jesus is telling us here is, and it seems consistent with the rest of Scripture, is that although... We should certainly judge ideas and actions as right or wrong. Individually, we have no right to send people away. Now, with that said, there are, like I mentioned, certain institutions that God gives this right to. For example, the government that reigns over us. God has given them the right to conduct a judgment on people through our court system and to put them away into jail. Romans 13 says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the governing authority, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of who, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so it's given to those in authority and the government to judge in this way. It's also given to the authority in the church, the elders of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, The Apostle Paul writes that it has been reported that there is sexual immorality in the church and of the kind that's not even tolerated by pagans. And then he goes on to conclude by saying this, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he says, Purge the evil person from among you. That is to send them away, to put them 
asunder, to put them outside of the, the blessing of the fellowship of the church. And of course, finally, this authority not only belongs to leadership and government and leadership in the church, but it also belongs to the ultimate leaders, the Trinitarian God. We see time and again that at Christ's second coming, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Revelations 19.11, when John is seeing the vision of the end times, he says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so God has given authority to certain institutions, to the government to put people out of society, to the elders to put people out of the church. And of course, God himself has ultimate authority to put people out of his kingdom. But the individual person, you and I, have no right to send people away, to distance ourselves from them in order to punish them. We may have to do it for safety concerns, but we do not send people away to punish them. Many of you are familiar with the story of the woman at the well, where we got the name Jacob's Well from. At this well, there is a woman who shows up. She's a promiscuous woman, and society looks down on her. They have cast her out, but she shows up, and we see the disciples and Jesus both judging her in some form. Jesus judges that what she is doing is wrong, but he does not use that judgment to shame her and to send her away, but he uses that to draw close to her, to love her, to care for her, and to liberate her. But then the disciples come along, and they think to themselves, why is he talking to her? You see, their judgment led them to push her away, but Jesus' judgment led him to draw her near. Do you see the difference between the two? And so what Jesus is warning us against is judging people in such a way that we think down about them, that we put them away, that we don't associate with them or care for them or engage with them. As we go on to verse 2, we see that Jesus not only commands us not to judge people by putting them away from us, but he also warns us of eternal consequences. Verse 2, well, 1 and 2, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Jesus is saying that when somebody sins against you, or sins in general, do not discard them. Do not distance yourself from them. Do not condemn them. Because if you do, you stand in danger of God doing the same to you. You see, if you are unable to pursue and love and engage those who have sinned against you, it might be because you have not yet understood that is the heart of the gospel. That is exactly what God has and is doing for you. See, when we engage people who have hurt us with love and gentleness, when we pursue them, we are actually displaying a mirror of the gospel. In John 3.16, words that you are probably very familiar with, we read that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then it says this, and it uses this word crino to judge multiple times. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn, that is, the word to judge, 
the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, again, same word, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, we have offended a great God, a holy God, more than anyone has ever offended us, and yet God did not stay at a distance. He did not stiff arm us, but he sent his son Jesus into the world to draw near to us, not to condemn you, but to be condemned for you. By being separated from the love of the Father on the cross, dying and being cast into hell, what all of us deserve, that we may never be cast away from God and his love for all eternity. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And now God is calling us to do the same thing. You see, in Matthew 18, when it talks about going and confronting your brother who is in sin, it gives this very specific purpose. It says to win the person. In Galatians 6.1, when it says to confront those who are in a pattern of sin, it says for this very reason, to restore the person. And so let me ask you this question. Is there anyone in your life who has hurt you that you are keeping at arm's length? Anyone that you are refusing to engage with? Anyone either physically or maybe even relationally or even emotionally that you have detached from because you are unwilling to judge rightly? Because you're unwilling to engage See, when Jesus says, judge not, Jesus is not calling us to universally approve every thought and practice. But what Jesus is calling us to is to engage with people, people who have sinned against us and people who are sinning against God. Not to distance ourselves from them, but to fight for connectedness between us and them and between them and God. And so we are to confront lovingly, Engaging the person, not casting them away. Secondly, judge not means that we are to confront repentantly. Look at verse 3 with me. Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice a log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You know, this passage is probably very familiar to so many of us. And so sometimes we lose the the drama of what Jesus is communicating here. But he is saying that there is this massive two by four, this log sticking out of your eye, while there is a speck of dust in your brother's eye. And you need to remove this log in order to go and confront them about this speck of dust. Now, it could be that Jesus is saying that you have a bigger and greater sin in your life. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. I think what Jesus is more likely addressing is how we perceive our sin and other people's sin. You see, naturally, we inflate other people's sin and we minimize our sin. Naturally, we still often see this monstrous plank in their eye and just a piece of sawdust in our own eye. To us, what they did seems like a major, heinous violation worthy of our condemnation, where our response is simply just a speck. We may even justify it by what they have done. This happens throughout all of our life. It starts in kids. Maybe you have seen this scenario in your own life. Kids wake up. 
they get together for breakfast, they're eating cereal, and one kid gets angry because another kid looked at them funny or is sitting too close or whatever it might be. And so kid one takes a Cheerio from kid two to get back. And then kid two starts screaming that kid one took the Cheerio. And before it's all said and done, they're running around the house with clubs trying to hit each other. Maybe that doesn't happen in your house, but why does this happen? Well, it's because we see their crime is way more grievous than our own, right? Our, our, our response is justified because their sin is so much worse than ours. And so it continues to escalate. You know, this isn't only limited to children. This happens all the time in, in marriage and in the workplace and in friendships and, and really in any relationship. We can see the other person's fault with 2020 vision. It is a monstrous elephant. But our sin is so hard to see. It is just a speck of dust, or so we think. You know, maybe even you're here today and you're listening to this sermon and you're secretly hoping in yourself that the person down the row is listening. Or you're thinking to yourself, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon. You've missed the point. (laughs) We're not to be looking first for the plank in our brother's eye, but looking for the plank in our own eye. You know, we so easily exaggerate the sin of others and minimize our own that when Jesus comes here and he says to look for the plank in your own eye first, what he is doing is he is calling us to swim against the stream. He's calling us to go in a direction that often does not come naturally to us. He's encouraging us to see the depth of our own sin before we go and confront the sin of the other. But he continues, verse five, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So how do we take the log out of our eye? Well, first off, we come to God and we, we give this very dangerous prayer. We say, Lord, show me the depth of my sin. It is a scary prayer to pray, but it is a great prayer to pray. Lord, show me where I am in error in this. Show me where I am at fault. And then as God reveals to us our, our selfishness, our sinfulness, then we come to him and we say, Lord, forgive us. We repent of it. We turn from it. And then we go to the person that we have sinned against and we repent against them as well. And so God calls us to confront people lovingly, engaging the person, not putting them asunder, but fighting for connectedness. And we're supposed to confront people repentantly, seeking for God to first help us see the plank in our own eye and repent of it to God and to others. And finally, Jesus guides us and directs us to confront people discerningly. You know, I mentioned earlier that many times people take this verse, judge not, to torpedo any sort of critique you may make of their life, any sort of judgment you may make of their life. They'll just say, judge not, and then you're kind of disarmed, right? Your feet are wiped out from underneath you. But the other way that we use this is really to undermine our own efforts, you know, if, if I see a friend that is doing something that's unhealthy for him or for his family, I'll sit there and I'll think to myself, who am I to judge, right? And then what am I doing? I'm actually doing the thing that Jesus is warning us against. I am distancing myself from them and not engaging them lovingly. 
And so Jesus does not simply stop by saying, do not judge. He goes on and he says, remove the plank from your eye for this purpose so that you will see clearly so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, if we take this text to disengage with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have misunderstood this text. Jesus is saying, the reason you take the plank out of your eye is so that you can go and gently and lovingly and caringly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus continues and he says something that seems extremely out of place and even bizarre. Verse 6, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's funny, uh, Friday, Chad said, how are you going to preach that verse? And I said, I have no idea. I'm excited to find out. There's been a lot of ink spilled about commentators trying to figure it out and sermons preached. So let me just give you my best guess at what Jesus is communicating in this context. To understand, we first have to understand the words that he is talking about. When Jesus talks about dogs and pigs, he's talking about unclean animals. First Peter 2 talks about how a dog will return to its vomit to eat it. That's pretty unclean. And then pigs in the Old Testament was a food that they were not allowed to eat because it was deemed unclean by God. And it's not until Acts chapter 10, when Peter is called to go to the Gentile, that God declares all foods clean, including bacon. Just side note. But he declares all foods clean to show us that the gospel is for all people. And so dogs and pigs represent unclean people. Now, what about the pearl? The pearl, this passage tells us, is holy, which means it is sacred. It is set apart. Pearls are used in the New Testament to describe something that is precious. But most notably, it is used to describe the kingdom of God. Later in this book, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so with these definitions in mind, let's look back at verse 6 and see maybe what it's saying to us. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Why? Lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In understanding this verse, we have to understand that the first five verses, Jesus is talking about how we resolve conflict within the church. He's talking about between brothers and sisters in Christ. But here he is calling us to engage those that are unclean in a completely different way. He's calling us to engage them in a way that the gospel will not be tread underfoot. You see, if you try to feed a pearl to a dog or a pig, they will not realize how precious it is, and they will use it not to, not to buy food, but they'll use it for traction in the mud. And so for an unbeliever, their greatest need, what Jesus is telling us, is not to stop sinning. Their greatest need is a Savior. To understand that it is not the gospel is not something to be trampled underfoot, but something to be cherished as a pearl of great price in which God can make them clean. To put it in theological terms, Jesus is telling us 
that as we go to unbelievers, as we are going to confront them about things, we need to keep first things first. As we come and we confront one another, we are concerned for our sanctification, being made into the likeness of Jesus. But as we go to those who don't know Christ, we are most concerned with their justification, that they would be declared right before God, that they would be declared clean before God, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me give you this example. Uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley was a professor I had in seminary, and uh, he writes lots of different articles for, for different, different papers and such. And December 31st of this past year, so uh, almost January 1st, he wrote an a, a article, and the title of it is Ending Abortion Through Hospitality. Great title. This is, I'll just read a part of it to you. He says, in the wake of the terrible shooting last month, at Planned Parenthood facility in Colorado Springs, Colorado, I began to wonder if evangelicals should completely change their approach to challenging abortion. What if they made a New Year's resolution to move from protest to hospitality in 2016? Conferences, rallies, and on-site protests may raise awareness among those already committed to the pro-life cause, but they are not likely to bring about the change Christians really want. It also seems unlikely that abortion laws will change anytime soon, if ever. What remains, then, is the ancient children's liberation movement practiced by the early Christian church that changed the world by taking in the children the larger society wanted to destroy. When early Christians practiced what the Bible actually teaches, it resulted in families opening up their homes to people in need as a result In the ancient world, children who were often treated less than cattle and were exploited, not only were protected, but they also became people. Should we judge whether abortion is wrong or not? Absolutely. We need to discern what is right and wrong. God calls us to speak out for those who have no voice. But how do we treat the person who had an abortion? I realize some of you here today, this may be your story. And I am sorry for how the church has judged you in ways that Jesus does not call us to. You see, Jesus would call us not to punish these people, not to put them at arm's length, not to put a scarlet letter on them or or secretly share it with everybody in the church. But Jesus would call call us to bring them into our house, to fight for connected witness with them, and to tell them about the blood of Jesus that can make them clean from all of their sins. Or even taking it a step farther. Maybe you know somebody who, who, who performs abortions, a doctor. And maybe your, your temperament towards them is to simply disdain them and to tell them how awful they are. But Jesus says, you know what? Don't feed pearls to the unclean. They do not know the good news of the gospel. You have relational collateral with this person. And the most important thing that they know is that they need a savior. And so don't use this simply to confront sin, but tell them their need for Christ. What if instead of separating ourselves from those who were in deep sin, running away from God, what if instead of condemning them, we drew near to them and we used discernment, not to tell them simply of all the ways they are messing up, but to tell them about a savior who can make them clean. You see, Jesus loved the worst of sinners and the worst of sinners loved Jesus. 
Because he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world and to make it clean. So we must confront sin lovingly, engaging the person, not distancing themselves. We must confront sin repentantly, searching for the plank in our own line and confessing it to God and to the other person. And we must confront sin discerningly, knowing how to speak winsomely to the people that we are talking to. Let me end with this. I, I had an illustration uh, in my heart, in my mind all week that I didn't put down on paper because I didn't want to share it with you. Um, but just being convicted by the Holy Spirit, I think I do. Uh, during my sabbatical, Trish and I went and we, we visited other churches. Um, when we go visit other churches, our hope is to encourage the pastor and say, keep going, way to go. Uh, and we went to one church and the, the sermon was, was horrific. Uh, it was a complete twist of scripture. Um, to, to put it generally, um, the pastor kind of said, if you want more money, fast until God gives it to you. That was more or less the, the message. Uh, earn, earn what you want, like treasure money above, above God. And then, and then without ever mentioning the cross or, or Jesus, really, he, he had an altar call in which people came forward. And it's just so confusing. And, and then we walked out and, and Trisha's friend came up to her and said, wasn't that sermon amazing? And we're sitting there like, oh, what do you say? And so we drive away and we're sick to our stomachs and we're not sure how to process all this. And, and I told our elders what church it is so that they could care for the sheep if they decide to go there. I don't make it public. But, but here's what I have failed to do. This, this pastor, I, I believe, is a Christian. I think he loves Jesus. But what I have done in my sin is I have condemned him. I have hated him. It is okay to be angry at the way that he twisted God's word. That is perfectly legitimate. But what I have done is I have distanced myself from him. I have not sought to pursue him. And so now all of you are my accountability partner for the week. How about that? And so you can ask me next week, have I started to pursue this other pastor to come alongside him, to repent of my sin in the situation, to repent of, of hating my brother? And have I engaged him lovingly and caringly, removing the plank from my own eye, confessing it to him and to God, and then working on the speck in his own eye? You know, maybe you have such a scenario in your life where God is calling you to engage someone with love and care and gentleness. Judge not does not mean you do not judge whether things are destructive or healthy, but it means that you do not push the people away. Draw near to them and draw near to God with the love of Christ that he has drawn near to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and how it challenges us, Lord. How it, it confronts us and, and maybe even moves us into areas that we are not so comfortable with, Lord. God, I pray that you would <laughs> be with me, uh, be with those here who, who have people that need to talk to. Lord, pray that you would reveal in our hearts our planks, that we might repent to you and repent to our brothers and sisters of the things we have done wrong. But then give us the wisdom and courage and gentleness to wipe the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. We need your help. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.